0: Have your Bibles this morning. You can open to Matthew chapter two, or the passage is in your worship folder today. I mentioned John Adamson earlier, and and most of the session knows him. John is we call him the bishop, uh, even though Presbyterians don't have bishops. uh, But he is basically the corporate memory for the presbytery. He has been uh, a churchman for years and years out of Second Pres. And uh, his wife Anne is, is, uh, was uh, such a beautiful woman and, and uh, accompanied John on many of his journeys. He comes here every year to meet with the session, uh, but she has, has passed away. That was, in case you a little bit of elaboration on who John Adamson uh, is, as I mentioned him. So Matthew chapter two, if you're able, would you stand with me as I read the Word of God? Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us. Give us understanding to what these words say. Give us the the meaning that we might live in holiness, that our lives might be demonstrations of obedience to Christ the King. It is in his name we pray, amen. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now remember, we have been working kind of through the individuals who came to adore Christ. The angels, the shepherds, the um, uh, Mary and her adoration of her son, um, the adoration of those who were saved, and now the adoration of the wise men. Now just as uh, this is going to be kind of history and scripture at the same time, so uh, I'll try to differentiate which which I'm referring to. But just as a reminder, the timing of the visit of the Magi, uh, the events in this passage or probably a couple months after Christ was born. Uh, we see in verse 11 the family staying in a house rather than in the stable. Um, Jesus would have already been circumcised on the eighth day. Mary would have gone through her ritual of purification um, and we read some of that earlier uh, relative to the uh, two turtle doves and the two pigeons she offered Now, in Leviticus, it says you have to offer a lamb for the first child, the first male child that comes out of the womb. Um, So if the wise men had already come with their very expensive gifts, we would have assumed that Mary and Joseph would have had enough to get a lamb. But if you're poor, then some turtle doves or pigeons will suffice instead. Um, So who were the Magi? Hmm. Well, we sing about them, right? So we're sure there's three. we're not sure there's three. We think there's three because there's three gifts. There might have been ten or twenty magi that come, but they only brought three gifts. We just don't know, okay? Because not much is said about them beyond wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. That's what we know for sure. Now, it's possible to put some pieces together historically... Uh, from a variety of sources to give us an idea and and to draw some general conclusions about who the wise men were uh, and what they were about. So the short version of who the wise men were, they were members of an eastern priestly group. They were descendants of the Medes. So remember that, descendants of the Medes. Now, before we get to some conclusions that we can draw historically or from Scripture, let's look at some conclusions that have come about the wise men that are a little more far-flung. How about that? Okay. Now, Marvin Vincent, who specializes in Greek word studies, okay, Vincent's word studies, uh, gives us some less reliable views of the wise men. And I'm just going to quote him here. Many absurd traditions and guesses respecting these visitors to our Lord's cradle have found their way into popular belief and into Christian art. They were said to be kings, three in number. They were said to be representatives of three families, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Whose dad was there? Noah's, okay? And therefore, one of them is pictured as Ethiopian in art. Their names have been given Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior, Where they came up with that, we're just not sure. Their three skulls, amazingly, have been found. I know this is news to you. Um, The remains of the Magi were brought to the cathedral in Cologne in 1154 after having been pillaged from the Italians. Okay, Uh, So Bishop Reynold of Cologne dug up the three skulls and knew right off that they were the skulls of the Magi. Now, how would he know that? Because their eyeballs, which were still in their skulls, were t- facing Bethlehem. Uh, this is, I didn't tell you this was fact. I just said this was some ideas. Uh, so they're on exhibit today in the shrine of the three kings in the Cologne Cathedral. Okay? Now, uh, we see this often in cathedrals. When I did the Camino de Santiago, when I walked through Spain, you end up in Santiago and you go to the Cathedral of St. James. And you walk down in the bowels of St. James and you pass by a box that is said to hold the bones of St. James. James from the New Testament. Um, you know, I'm Presbyterian. It is a box. Uh, I'm sure there was something in the box. There were people who were very devout who were, you know, kissing the ground and things like that. But um, it was a box, as far as I know. Okay. So, let's get to some historic facts and some scriptural things that we do know and can draw conclusions from. Now, the Magi were originally a pagan priestly tribe from the regions of the Medes and the Persians. Okay, Astronomers, astrologists, and in those days, there really wasn't much separation between superstition and science. So, they had some power and authority because of that. They were geographically within the Babylonian Empire, which, if you remember, um, if you were in the Sunday school studying Jeremiah, an area that was highly influenced by the uh, captivity of the Jews. They were taken into captivity uh, under Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and if you remember, they uh, odds are the most prominent of the Jews that were taken into captivity. Uh, his captivity. His name was. Daniel okay so odds are and I'm just going to connect some dots here there's not fact this is hypothetical odds are that the magi the this class of um, priests priestly individuals came into contact with Daniel and that's how they learned about the messianic prophecies the messianic prophecies remember uh, when they went into captivity, uh, the Lord said in Jer- through Jeremiah, build gardens, you know, plant gardens, build houses, you're going to be there a while. Seventy years they were there, probably two generations, well, plenty of them stayed in Babylon. So there was this Jewish influence now that was taking hold in Babylon. So at the time in Babylon, the Magi were probably high-ranking officials, known for their their wisdom, Uh, as I said, their astrological uh, uh, observances uh, relative to the stars, and also their occultist, occultist abilities and influences. So they came in contact with the Jewish people, probably Daniel as well, heard about these prophecies regarding the Messiah. Now, the Magi, we call them Magi, that comes from the word magicians. They weren't really magicians, but that's where the word comes from, had a history of prominence both in Greek and Roman cultures. The Magi became so powerful that historic records tell us that no Persian was ever able to become king except under two conditions. One, he had mastered the scientific and religious disciplines of the Magi, and two, He had to be approved by the Magi. So the Magi became known as kingmakers in the empire of the Medes and the Persians. And the Magi had a particular type of wisdom that was actually categorized under the law of the Medes and the Persians. So we see this in Esther, and we see this in Daniel 6. Remember, Daniel got tossed in the lion's den because of the law of the Medes and Persians. The king made a proclamation. It could not be changed. I mean, ultimately, he was there because the Lord had plans for him. But because of the law of the Medes and Persians, that's why Daniel went into the lion's den. So let's stick with Daniel for a second. Daniel chapter 2. We're in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, Let's take us back there in history. And Nebuchadnezzar's had a dream, and he gathers the Chaldeans, and the Chaldeans answered before the king, and there is not a man on earth that can reveal the king's matter, because the king just said, he gathered these guys together and said, I've had a dream, tell me what it means. He didn't tell them the dream, he just said, tell me what it means. So the quote is, the the Chaldeans answered before the king and said, there's not a man on earth that can reveal the king's matter, Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such things of the magi, astrologer, or Chaldeans. We think that's saying the same thing three times. Now, of course, we know that Daniel shows up, and because the Lord reveals it to him, he is able to work with the king. So the magi were known as those who could interpret dreams, but in the instance in chapter 4, only Daniel could interpret the king's dream. Let me quote a little bit from chapter 4. Then came in the magi, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, and I told the dream to them, but they didn't make known unto me its interpretation. O Balthazar, master of magicians. So there is a name given to one of the masters in the magi, priestly order, uh, but that doesn't match the names of others that we have included, but we do see that name. So, a little bit of history there. So, how did they get to Bethlehem? Well, we all know they followed the star. What was the star? It was a star, okay? But there are other thoughts, so I'm going to give you some of those other thoughts. Dr. Nicole, Colin Nicole, wrote a book, The Great Christ Comet, Revealing the True Star of Bethlehem. Okay, He says it's a comet, and it showed up in its regular path. It's out there doing its uh, orbits in the galaxy. And it was just a natural phenomenon that the Lord used to lead the magi who were astrologers uh, to the place in Bethlehem. Much like Halley's Comet, I think it's 76 years uh, does its orbit. I don't believe it was a comet um, because it says it was a star. That's one thing. Now we comet, star, did they know the difference? But the Lord is able to use a variety of things in a variety of ways. We know he created a big fish to swallow Jonah that he could survive three days within its belly. And then we hear nothing again of the big fish. And pretty much like the star, it shows up. We see it. or we don't see it. the, The Magi see it. They follow it. And then nothing about it again. Christianity is full of supernatural. I mean, it is the supernatural that we're talking about. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the incarnation of the Son of God coming into this world. We see it in the atonement for our sin. We see it in the empty tomb and his return. So the Lord uses the supernatural, virgin conception. He also uses the natural order of society and and of the world that he has created. Uh, So he is not above Uh, using the regular things and the regular happenings to further his will. Uh, But I would hold that um, this is a star created especially for this event, but scripture doesn't give us an answer to that. It just says a star appeared in the east and they followed. Uh, So we're left to draw our own conclusions. So it must not be essential to know if it was a real star or a comet because the Lord doesn't tell us. Just as a star. So God had preordained this star in Bethlehem in the same way that he had ordered society and ordered history to bring his son into the world at this time. And it was that star that ultimately led the Magi to the Messiah. And what did they do? This is the most important aspect. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They've come to worship the newborn king. They have come to adore the Son of God, he who has been born king of the Jews. So they come to Jerusalem. Where else would the king be but in the capital city? As I mentioned earlier, magi were kind of viewed as kingmakers. So when these magi show up, it says Herod and all of Jerusalem are troubled. Now Herod was already kind of crazy. He was very crazy. Um, so this meant trouble. We're here to see the one who was born king of the Jews. Herod thought he was king of the Jews. Uh, not really. Not really. We're here to honor him, to show him homage, to worship him. And, and, and imagine the surprise of the magi. They've come all this way to worship the new king of the Jews, and Jerusalem doesn't know anything about him. There's no preparation, there's no coronation service, nothing like that. And they're kind of surprised that nobody is interested in this. So, neither Herod, nor the scribes, nor the Pharisees, nor anybody in Jerusalem was really aware of what was going on. So think for a moment. Here are the kingmakers coming from Babylon, geographically. No doubt traveling with an entourage. These are very important men. Very powerful individuals. Magi, from what we can discern in history, typically wore these big canonical hats with um, points at the top. They rode horses. They didn't ride camels. They may have been accompanied by Persian cavalry. These are powerful men. And the Bible says Herod was troubled. Troubled is, is, um, is how the, it's been translated, but if you dig into the word, the Greek means he was greatly agitated to the point of shaking. Okay? So Herod's already a little crazy. The kingmakers come to ordain or to anoint the new king, which is not Herod. So Herod is shaking in anger and fear. So it's very interesting that the first people in the world to recognize the arrival of the king are some of the least in society, remember the shepherds, not trusted in society, and some of the least likely to be interested Gentiles from far away. They're the first to recognize Christ coming into this world. So what does that tell us about us? He came into his own And his own received him not. This is kind of a foreshadowing of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom. Least of these, the shepherds, Gentiles from the east, come to see the king. Herod Herod knows about the prophecy. He knows about the prophecy of the Messiah. He immediately knows to ask his scholars to look, and they go back to the prophet, as we read. Uh, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is the prophecy pointing to Christ. So he knows at least where to ask where he's born. But he's not making preparations to go there. We know a little bit later he makes preparations to kill every male child under two in the area. Because he didn't want a rival. The religious leaders, they know where to look exactly in their Old Testament to find the prophecy of the Messiah, but they don't understand it. They are not ready to go to Bethlehem to worship. They don't get in the caravan with the Magi. They just say, oh, it's in Bethlehem. And Herod says, come back afterwards so that I too may worship him. And we know that there at the end of the passage, being warned in a dream, the wise men went home a different way. See, anyone at any time in history, whether you're Jew or Gentile, in order to worship the Messiah, to see who he really is, God has to reveal him to you. I can't discern with my human eyes and my human ears and my human intellect who Jesus is. Now, Scripture is very clear that we can look at the created order, Romans chapter 1, and come to the conclusion that God exists. But to understand who Jesus Christ is... I have to, it has to be shown to me in his word and revealed to me through the work of the Holy Spirit. But these Gentiles, the Magi, who don't have the scriptures as far as we know, we're not sure how much God has shown them other than this is the star that's going to lead to the king of the Jews. He's shown them the star. It's compelled them on their way to Jerusalem and now Bethlehem. God shines his light on these Gentiles. Not Jews, but Gentiles. And they come seeking the Messiah. From the earliest pages in scripture, we see how God is going to reveal his purposes to the Gentiles, even though Christ has come to seek and save the lost of Israel, first and foremost. So the religious leaders knew where to go, chapter and verse, but they're spiritually blind. They don't don't know. Now, this church, Central Pres, dates back to, uh, if you look at Presbytery records, 1812 in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. It was at a different location in Huntsville, and then it came to this location. Uh, and then this is the second uh, structure here on this. In the foyer downstairs, you can see the two um, sanctuaries that were built. So for over 200 years, the gospel's been proclaimed. Scripture's rightly taught here, um, and, and it's, been, it's been a great opportunity to know the gospel. But not everybody who has heard it here has believed. Not everybody who has heard the gospel has had their life changed by the gospel. Now, thanks be to God that many, many have. Through the faithful preaching, the Sunday school teachers, uh, youth directors, all the individuals there. But not everybody has believed. We see this in the New Testament. The gospel is preached to... Um, Jews, Gentiles, Pharisees, tax collectors, prostitutes. Remember the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus wipes out diseases in those cities, in that area, because he heals so many. The gospel is preached, but the majority of people don't believe. And he says, woe to you cities. Woe to you. Not everyone believed. Not even all those who saw and experienced the miracles of Jesus Christ. Luke 17, ten lepers. They all come to Jesus. And he heals them all. How many come back to worship? Just one. What many the other nine? What'd they do? Well, they were so excited that they weren't lepers anymore. They just kept going on. Only one understands and comes back to worship the one who's changed his life forever. Matthew's telling us that Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jews, he's the Savior of the world. Jews and Gentiles, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. He's the Savior of all. And people all over the world are being saved and risking their lives to worship him. The singular Savior of the world. There's no other Now, we say that here in church, and and we're pretty safe, but that's just not a popular view in the world. I mean, the world in our very tolerant society says, he can be your savior, but don't make him the only one. Okay, don't push that view upon me because I may not think that way, I may not even think I need saving. See, in the Roman world, Matthew's day, this is pretty much the same as ours. Relativistic, pluralistic multicultural. Romans were quite happy for anybody to worship Jesus as long as you worship who first? The emperor. As long as you worship the emperor first, then you could go and worship any other god. But the Christians said, no, Jesus Christ is Lord alone, King of kings and Lord of lords. So as I said, this is the reason why the wise men came, verses 2 We have come to worship him. And then verse 8, when it says that I too may come and worship him, because I know you're going to worship him. That's what Herod said. Matthew doesn't tell you who the Magi are, doesn't tell us how many. Like I said, we all sing, we three kings, but we don't know that there were three. Three gifts, for sure. He doesn't tell you how they were dressed, he doesn't tell you their names. He doesn't tell you what happened to them after they went home a different way. He doesn't tell you the dates of their death or where they're buried. He tells you they saw a star and they followed. And it led them to Christ. And when they got there, they worshipped him. Because that's the center of the story of Christmas. That's the center of the story of history. That Christ came into this world. And everything hinges on that event even the very gifts that are given at that time are fit for a king, and they point to his work. We know the gifts: gold, frankincense and myrrh. Somewhere in my office are little bags of gold and Frank no, not gold, Frankincense and myrrh. I, the, the guy who gave me those, I said, "Where's the gold?" <laughs> he says, oh, no, I don't think so." Frankincense and myrrh. very expensive things. They opened the treasure. They presented these things to him. These are kingly gifts, but how ironic that the boy who had laid in a feeding trough is now receiving kingly gifts. But remember the first chapter of Matthew. The genealogy of Jesus is laid out, and Jesus is the descendant of David. And it was foretold that there will be a descendant of David who will sit on the throne for all eternity. Jesus Christ the Lord. He's the one who will sit on that throne. So Jesus is receiving kingly honor from Gentiles. Gentiles. The gifts he's been given speak to his life, his ministry, his work, and his death. For some of those spices were used in embalming. The child they came to worship had a work to accomplish our salvation. And he did so willingly for the joy that was set before him. He came into this world to give his life for us, to seek and save the lost. And on the third day, he conquered death, the first to come out of the grave. So we look at the wise men who came so far to worship Christ the King. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father. That you would move in the hearts, so long ago, of these who were, as far as we can tell, had, had no faith, had only heard about the prophecies of the Messiah, but yet you brought them to where Christ was. You showed them the way. And they arrived so that they could worship the king. And we see like the the shepherds before them. They went home a different way. Now we might take that as just geography or directions. But we can't help but think if they had come to worship the king that their lives were forever changed. And that they would never be the same. Lord you have called us here on this day. That we might hear these things. That we too might know Christ the Lord and Savior. Christ the King of kings and Lord of lords. That our lives would never be the same. That each day that we know these things we would grow in holiness and in obedience. That he would be first in our thoughts. That his desires would be first in our hearts. That obedience to him would reign far above obedience to anything that man can say or do. Lord, send your Holy Spirit upon us today that we might live these things out to your glory that others may know of the King of kings and Lord of lords. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.